This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. Dave Debo, we are talking about the community live in the community today. Today's broadcast is at the Golden Cup on Jefferson Avenue, about a block and a half, if that, from the shooting scene. A little bit later in the program, we'll hear from Sharon and Kenneth Holly, owners of Zawadi Books. Bridget Jai Paul Valenza will be here with that. And Jay Moran will have Carrie Oliver Perez, the diversity officer at Tapestry Charter School. There's much to talk about. To kick it off with me now, I have Emmanuel Kulu, Jr. He's an African uh, historian, and he's the creator of a series of books, The I, Black Pharaoh Universe. He spent several years researching ancient Africa, spreading the awareness in a lot of ways about the, the miseducation of African history. He's the creator also of a, a music label, Teflon Ent. He's a filmmaker, he's a speaker, he's an activist, and on top of all of that work that he does outside of the community, he's a guy of the community, in the community. So there's a, a lot that uh, we can get to. Uh, Emmanuel, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I do want to talk a little bit about the community and uh, what you've seen. You mentioned to me earlier that your sister was actually in the, the top store at the time of the incident. But I think in order to discuss it from the perspective that you bring, we have to talk a little bit first about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um, a lot of the work you've done has dealt with the idea of white privilege and specific miseducation. Yes. The idea that when it comes to, in some ways, the way black people are portrayed, especially in your case, the research you've done on Egyptian people, mm -hmm. the way they are portrayed mm -hmm. is as non-African. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about that, and then tell me why that's significant. What does that represent? What does that mean more mm -hmm. broadly? But first, what is it that you found in terms of the misrepresentation? Yes, and in my travels back and forth to Egypt and Africa as well, I found that Egypt has been to be the only African civilization that was separated from Africa. So in my own personal travels, I started guys like Ivan Van Serpma, Sheikh Anti Diop, uh, Vanessa Davies, a colleague of mine, and studying with these individuals, we came to understand that Africa had to be separated, uh, Egypt had to be separated from Africa in order to colonize and colonize Africa and also separate intelligence from ancient Africa as well. So this was something that uh, a lot of the scholars of Egyptology in those days sought to prove because they were coming from a perspective of biblical studies. And coming from that perspective, they couldn't allow African people to feel that they had any significance. Egypt was set apart. Yes. Even though yes. the culture, the heritage, the people mm -hmm. are of African descent. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
why was it done? You say just in order to enable colonization, or, or is well, there well, at the time even more subjugation involved, I would think. Absolutely. Uh, over time, Egypt had over 12 invasions. You have the Vandals, you had the Kushite invasion, you had the Roman, you had the Persian invasion, you also had down to the Arab invasion in the 7th century. So over time, Egypt became a very diverse place. But the original 3,000 years, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom were all black African civilizations with the exception of the Hyksos invasion in the, the, the Old Kingdom. And why was it important to say they are separate, that they're not African? Well, it was important for Eurocentric scholars to come up with this idea because they were coming from the perspective of biblical studies. So if you can trace back from the Bible when it mentions, you know, Joseph being in Egypt, Moses being in Egypt, you would find that these Egyptians and Israelite people were interconnected. So if they were interconnected, you were essentially saying that Black was the, was the world power at that time. Black people were the world power at that time. So this was not a recipe for Eurocentric scholarship to say that the beginning of civilization started with African people. And you've kind of, I don't want to say made a career out of this, but this is your life. This yes, is what you do. Absolutely. You yes. research this, you talk about this, mm -hmm. you've done presentations on this. Mm -hmm. Bring it back to the community for me. Mm -hmm. um, explain how a history of miseducation that you've uncovered in your work about Egypt connects to what happened down the street. Well, Marcus Garvey once said, a, uh, a person without his history is like a tree with no root. Now think about a tree with no root, right? The wind comes yeah. and knocks it right down, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is very important for African Americans, Africans throughout the diaspora, and just people in general, because all life started in Africa, to know its origin. So without that origin, you can eat your, your history can easily become whatever someone tells you. So it's very important. And does that occur on a daily basis now? Absolutely. I know Absolutely. it was a rhetorical question. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the, the, what, what is called the culture of African-American people, uh, people are thinking hip-hop, they're thinking sports, they're thinking the arts, they're thinking dance, maybe. Um, but that's where it may stop. Um, they're not thinking about astronomy. They're not thinking about astrology. They're not thinking about these uh, these ancient African artifacts that you know these Afrocoid faces that were in Egypt that stood proud before the whole entire world. They're not thinking about those things. They're not thinking about the study of the stars. They're not thinking about all of these things that Africans had mastered in their ancient times. So this was is very important to reconnect with. So it is a lack of pride. If they don't have a knowledge of the history that can mm -hmm. be celebrated, yes. they are downtrodden, you would say. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that sounds like your, your premise well, here. Well, it's, it's, it's based on group esteem and self-esteem, right? Professor yep. Robin Walker of the UK, he, he did a study on the, the working-class African-American. And what he understood was the working-class African-American has very high self-esteem with as, as a person, but very low group esteem. Now, group esteem is how you feel about your culture, your religion, and your race. So usually when individuals have low group esteem, 
they tend to dispute with one another. They tend to not agree because they don't have the pride, the, 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 the mm. unified pride of their culture. Now, if you compare that to, let's say, an, an Asian person, they, ha they have a higher group esteem than their, maybe their self-esteem, but when your group esteem is high, you're always looking up at what you can be. All right. And, and that's what I'm trying to raise the level and balance the self-esteem in the group esteem with African Americans and Africans in the diaspora. Bring it home for me to, again, the top shooting scene down the street here. Mm -hmm. By the way, we are live at the Golden Cup on Jefferson Avenue. Emmanuel Kulu is with us. He's an African historian. So if, if we sound a little different today, if you hear that phone ringing in the background or people moving their chairs, it's because we are at a coffee house. We felt it was <laughs> important to be in this community, literally just about a, a block and a half from the shooting scene. The shooting scene down the street, take mm -hmm. what you talked about in terms of lack of pride. Mm -hmm. Does that enable racism which leads to what we saw make that connection for me well if you if you talk talk about in in buffalo particularly um we know that if you're not if you're not in, intermingled with african-american people and you decided in to other move, words if you have the kind of segregation that yeah, we have segregation here, here in buffalo them, on the east side you're going sure. to tend to think whatever you hear about them you don't really know because you haven't really interacted and these are the things that kind of lead these uh, replacement theories to another level. They start to, you know, um, become radicalized by the Internet. And also, obviously, we're dealing with COVID, so people are more inside more than they used to be. So they're really getting stuck on this, this stuff like this. And the hate is increasing in people. A person can go pick up a gun down south before they can even drink, are allowed to drink. And... Here we are with hate. It's just a recipe all the way around for, for hatred. So it sounds like you're saying that the miseducation mm -hmm. is a bigger factor actually for white folk like mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. rather than people of color, no? Or does it, does it hurt in both scenarios? I, I would say it hurts. It would hurt more people who choose to separate. It may hurt the white community that separates themselves, particularly from the urban community, right? Mm -hmm. Um, those who are connected to the urban community, they have more, you know, diversity, so to speak. They understand that just, as an African-American, we have to deal with people of diverse communities every day to go into the DMV. Right. If we go into the schools, if we go into, to, you know, supermarket, we're dealing with diversity every mm -hmm. day. So we have trained ourselves to deal with it. But those who have chose to separate themselves and live into the outskirts where you won't see any black folk, now when you do, you're kind of nervous. So if you're not growing up with this diversity, if you're not embracing yourself in it, you're going to naturally think what you're being told. On, on our program uh, a couple days ago, we had Miles Gresham from the Partnership for the Public Good. Mm -hmm. And he spoke a little bit about something similar. He said that basically... Um, Certainly, we do not accept nor tolerate racism, mm. but if it's such a constant, if it's such a cultural thing, mm -hmm. it's easy to not get as upset about it, mm -hmm. to ignore the microaggression, to look the other way, right. to maybe not correct someone who's saying something they shouldn't be saying. Mm -hmm. Does what you're talking about, this whole miseducation theory, contribute to the tolerance if that's even I don't want to use the word tolerance but I think mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying does it contribute to the perhaps 
ignoring of racist slights. Absolutely. In the, in the out, outright denial that it's actually happened. The, the idea that African Americans have been just complaining that this is happening and it's not happening has been pushed by the media for years. Even if you go back to 1969 where uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, declared the Black Panther movement, which was a, a community put together to protect the black community from the KKK. Mm -hmm. um, they were labeled by uh, Homeland Security the number one threat to the United States of America. Well, in more recent years, down to today, white supremacy and white supremacist radicalists are considered to be the number one threat to security in America right now. And nothing is being done to dismantle them as they did the Black Panthers. So. We, we have to take a look at that, and, and we cannot keep turning aside and saying that this isn't happening when we see it happen right 20 feet from us right now. So other than having a lecturer like Emmanuel Kulu Jr. go around town and say, here's education as I know it, mm -hmm. what kind of reforms spring from your research? What mm -hmm. sort of re-education, and I know that's not maybe the best, that, that almost uh, has, has uh, uh, communist uh, denotes, uh, notes there, and I don't want to mean that, but what sort of re-education or what sort well, of changes re has to happen? The re-education is, again, that our common that our common ancestor is an African woman. You know, that if all, if we all get back to that, to understand... And by ours, quite frankly, you're saying the both humanity. people of color and me. Humanity. Gotcha. Yes, absolutely. And once we get to that point, that we have a common denominator of where we all come from, then we'll start to really get the history. Now, history... Today, world history today says that basically African-Americans fell off the planet and ended up in slavery, which is not true. But if we take it back to the ancient days, we're seeing African doing great things, laying the foundation of civilization. All people can connect to that. Of course, more so recent than not, it would be Africans and African-Americans and African diasporans, but originally it connects back to every human being. That is a connection for all of us. This is Buffalo What's Next, and uh, we're speaking with Emmanuel Kulu. If you'd like to join the conversation, not only today, but in the, the next couple of days, go to our app, and uh, you can leave a comment by hitting the Talk to Us button. We will collect those comments uh, together and kind of use them on the air in future discussions as if, uh, as if you were calling in right now. So if there's anything you need to say about this program or discussion, head over to our app right now and hit the Talk to Us button. Let's go beyond the issue of education. What are you seeing right now in the community? Uh, is there still grief? Is there still anger? Or is it now, I've seen the signs around here where it says thoughts and there's a check mark. Prayers, there's a check mark. And then the little box for action is left empty mm -hmm. as if to say that, that we need more action. Absolutely. Are we still in the thoughts and prayers mode? Or have we reached the point where people are now starting to say, yeah, let's, let's do something. I think we're, we're, we're still in the thoughts and prayers because uh, a lot of our loved ones were touched by the situation. You didn't even have to have a loved one there to still be touched just to see it. I mean, this, this video has gone viral. So people are still yeah. recovering from the mental torture that they're going through. Um, but yes, there are organizations um, that have come to Buffalo that are not particularly from Buffalo that are starting to organize some sort of action plans. So we are seeing that. Um, Tell me more about that. Uh, you're saying outside groups are now saying, hey, Buffalo needs our help? Yes. I mean, we've had support from the Buffalo Bills. Uh, we've seen Alf Sharpton come. Sure. He's in town. Uh, we've seen many, many, the president has come. Yeah. So we're seeing that change may come right here through Western New York beginning. 
you know, to fight this battle against white supremacy um, that's that's plaguing the world right now. What do you see as the number one need? What 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 does that change look like? Well, inclusion. When I when we talk about education, the study of black history, it can no longer be optional. It has to be mandatory, just like anything else. Uh, if you go to, I've traveled to the African continent 17 times, and in my, st in my time there, you go into the schools, these students, they learn about European history every day. More so, they learn about European history than even their own African yeah, history. Yeah. So this is the same thing that we have to understand, that this is the origin of our humanity. So it's important to have African history be inclusive in the education system and be mandatory, not optional. Is that change in education something that uh, needs to trickle into the Buffalo public schools? Absolutely, absolutely. Because they're very much about culturally uh, and, and linguistically sensitive curriculum. I mm -hmm. know that they have done a lot of efforts and they are primarily a, a minority student school district. Mm -hmm. uh, they're already there, right, Emmanuel? And yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're ahead of some, but okay. we're still not there. Okay. We're still not there. Um, I'm currently, um, I founded a program called Ancient African Antiquities Research Institute of America, and our goal is to create a curriculum, curriculum working with African scholars and, and colliding them with what has been compiled in, with history as well to try to restore this great ancient okay. African history and bring it on to a common core curriculum. I know we had talked about uh, your roots in the community. You told me uh, that before this program went on air that your sister mm -hmm. was actually in the Tops market yes. at the time of the, the shooting. Mm -hmm. By no means do I want to be insensitive, but, but what can you share about that? You know, my sister, um, she, her, my nephew dropped her off, and thank God, him and his friend decided to pull off and not stay in outside in front of the supermarket because he also would have been a victim. But he pulled off. His friend said, hey, he had to get something from home. So he went home. But my sister was inside. She was by the deli area when she heard the shots. Um, as she saw the video, she said if the, the shooter would have turned in her direction, instead of turning the direction he turned where he shot those other women, um, they also would have probably been victims. They would have had no time to react. But because they were able to hear the shooting and hear the shots, they were able to escape out of the Delhi area with many other individuals as well at that time. Let's put it in really concrete terms. Again, I, I, I'm trying to be sensitive, but I'm, I'm also hoping you can talk more about what has happened around here. How mm -hmm. many funerals have you been to? I haven't been to any of them. Um, I've seen a lot of them, uh, you know, to be honest. Um, I've seen some of them on, t on television, but... Uh, it's it's been it's been hurtful. Uh, you know, I have a friend that had a cousin there. Um, my sister was there, and it's just it's just heartbreaking. You know, and uh, I think the community is also still afraid to gather, afraid to gather right now, faint out of fear. Like w people just don't want to go any place where it's just going to be a massive gathering because we don't know what's going to happen. So uh, those concerns are there, and um, people are really scarred by it. You're, you're still hearing that people, there won't be a mass gathering on the street, uh, a mm -hmm. protest or rally, anything like that anytime soon. Mm -hmm. and, and I also want to commend Buffalo. Out of all the times these things happen, we know about the situation with George Floyd. We know about the 60s when Dr. King passed away and the riots and all of those things. 
This has not happened in Buffalo since these shootings. We haven't seen one broken window, no burning down of communities here in Buffalo. So we have to, you know, give Buffalo a big shout out for being that praying city and that spiritual city to keep fighting racism with our words, with our passion, with love, the best that we can. All right, closing moments here before we move on to our next segment. Uh, what one message do you have for the community? Or let me ask it a different way. What does Buffalo need right now? Buffalo needs more diversity. We need more diversity. We need to come together diverse-wise. You know, we need more opportunities in communities like this. There's no reason why this community should be a food desert. It's absolutely no, no, no reason. Um, and, and even now and before they instituted this, this tops here, it was a food desert. So these things have to be paid attention to. Every area needs to be a little bit more diversified. We need more diversity in the city. And Byron was trying to do that from what I understand by saying if you work in the city, work for the city, you got to live in the city. So mm -hmm. things like that will help with diversity. All right. Emmanuel Kulu, thanks so much. This has been a great discussion. Thank you. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to WNED.org vehicles. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. Adirondacks. Canadian Rockies by Rail. Chautauqua and American Narrative. And so much more to watch. The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, where we critically examine and have real conversations about what led to the top shooting massacre and how to move forward. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today we're out in the community on Buffalo's east side. So if you hear that noise behind us, it is a busy coffee house, the Golden Cup Cafe and Roastery on Jefferson Avenue. Today we're joined by Sharon Holly, owner of Zawadi Books. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Um, it's been heartbreaking these last couple of weeks. How, how are you doing? I, I think I'm doing okay. You know, there's still the realization of what happened, and so all of that's still there. But, I, you know, physically I'm doing okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, Zawadi Books is one of America's longest independent-owned and operated black bookstores. Tell me about your history. Well, we started out in... Um, 1976 as Harambe Books and Crafts and uh, we were located you know first in our apartment and then we moved later on to a brick and mortar we were on Main and East Utica Street and from there we moved to East Utica and Fillmore Avenue and from there we sold the bookstore 
and uh, new owners moved it on Sycamore Street. And then they decided to go out of business, and we got the store back <laughs> and changed the name from Harambe to Zawadi. And as Zawadi Boats, we operated first on uh, Main and near Jewett Parkway. And for the last five years, we've been on Jefferson Avenue. What does Zawadi mean? Zawadi is a key Swahili word that means gift. You are a gift. <laughs> you are a gift to the community. Um, Forty years on and off, then, is a long time to be in the community. Um, tell me about what it was like when you first started, when you first opened back in 1976. Well, I, I think I'll let uh, Kenneth Holly, who's also here with me, kind of talk a little bit about the history of um, how we got started, what, what things were involved when we started. Well, basically when we started, it has to be remembered that when we started it was in the middle of the black consciousness movement of the 70s. So when we started, we was part of a community that spread across the country with different people trying to do different things in the black community to bring the community together. So what we decided to do, since there was a void in Buffalo of a black bookstore, to open up a black bookstore here in Buffalo, there was a few books being sold by, I'm going to date myself here because most people won't remember, but there was a bookstore called Albrecht's Bookstore down on Main Street, and there was also a gift shop on Utica called the Center for Positive Thought who was selling a few black books. But what we wanted to do is bring a full black bookstore. And historically, the black bookstore was more than just books. It was a community center. It's a place where people came, they met, the speakers came from across the country. And when they came to town, the first place they wanted to go to usually was the black bookstore. They wanted to speak there. When events came up, people wanted the events to be known in the black bookstore because they knew people were going to come there. And that's where that movement, that's where Harambe and Zawadi were birthed out of. So it really is um, the sense of community and building community and making sure that people are really connected to one another. It's a gathering place. Right. It's a place where we want to tell our story. Mm -hmm. We want our story to be told because usually what you get in the other stores, it wasn't a lot of like black history. There was more like a black street life being told in those books that they were selling. But we had a story to tell of our own, and we wanted to get that out there. I mean, we all know that, obviously, history is told sometimes uh, in ways that will not, will vilify a certain entity and make a certain entity look a lot better than necessarily they are. So it's important for a particular community to be able to tell their story themselves. Um, did that then inform the books that you decided to sell at the store? Oh, definitely, because there were some black authors, especially historians, whose story wasn't getting out there at all. And we needed to tell that story. We needed to get it out there. We needed to know there was more than just one side of the story, that we had our own story to tell. And we wanted to put that out there so people, especially in our community, would know about it. Tell me about the changes that you've seen happening around you. 
Well, there have been, I could say on one hand, there have been a lot. <laughs> then on the other hand, nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this community, I could say personally, I started my career in this community as a librarian at the North Jefferson Library, which is the building right behind where the Golden Cup is now. And that was in 1972. So in 1972, there were many other businesses on Jefferson. I think there was a theater here. The Apollo Theater was here. There was a pharmacy. Uh, There was not a major grocery store even then, Uh, but there were places where you could purchase food, but there was not a major grocery store. But there were other shops. There was a flower shop, a shoe shop. You know, there were businesses that you see in most small business communities. So over the years, people have begun to move out. You know, businesses have closed and people have moved on either to get a bigger store or a larger business or just went out of business, you know, period. But I look at it as saying, within a community, there are some basic necessities that you want to see. The basics of food, clothing, and shelter, okay? You know, so... You want to be in a place where you can find food to eat. You want to be in a place where the housing is adequate and that you can afford it and that it's available. <laughs> and, and you want to be able to do your basic needs, which is to find clothing for you or your, your family members without having to drive 20, 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> to buy a scarf. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, or to put on a pair of shoes. So not just this community, but communities throughout the nation have been changing in that sense, especially uh, in concentrations of African-American or other communities or minorities. If you had to put reason to the change, why do you think it happened? Well, some of it's the systemic, some of it's policy, you know, um, there, there are so many reasons. I, I wouldn't be able to like pinpoint one reason. Like if you have an available housing stock in the community, people are going to move in. They're going to want to live there. Uh, if you have um, a place for people to shop that's close by, folks are going to want to stay there. They, they want to be there. If you have adequate schools in those neighborhoods, you know, where you desire for your children to get an education, they're going to want to be in those neighborhoods. So it's a lot of different reasons why a neighborhood declines, you know, or why people um, seek change and move to other places. On your website, in response to the Tops Massacre, you have a quote from Samuel Yeti, author of The Choice, The Issue of Black Survival in America, that reads, There are other ways to kill people or colonize them, but none is more certain than the denial or control of their food. Why did you choose that quote? At the moment, it spoke to me. (laughs) We do a, a monthly column in the Buffalo Challenger which is a local weekly African-American newspaper. And uh, we list books that we recommend, books that are in our bookstore that that people can purchase. And we also try to put a quote or something, some kind of thought in 
front in front of it. And when I saw that thought, as opposed to saying something directly about the massacre that happened, that tended to kind of sum up what was going on. You know, it's, it's control, you know. What you see in a neighborhood controls. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things in a neighborhood that foster control. <laughs> I don't know if you want to add to what I'm saying, Kenny. Yeah, I just, I just want to change a little bit. I, my thing with these incidents is the height of insanity. Somebody says they keep doing the th same things over and over again, and that's what's happening with these things. Every time they happen, somebody acts like, "Oh, this is something new." But basically, after they happen, the same things always happen. You have the coming together of people for a little while. You have the media making front page copy, uh, copy for a little while. But has anybody here heard of Joseph Christopher? I mean, has everybody here heard of Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre was directly related to Buffalo? I mean, the same response comes every time after these things. People come together and say how sad they are, they give prayers. They hug each other, but then it doesn't solve anything because the root of the problem hasn't happened. These people can't even pass the mass gun control in this country. I mean the basic ones that kill people over and over again. And the same thing's going to happen again. These massacres are going to happen again and again in this country because nothing changes in this country, really. I mean, it's nice and it's feel good what happens in this country after each one. But the president is going to come to another one. The vice president is going to come up. The media is going to follow another one. But basically, the root of the problem hasn't changed at all. I mean, not even the basic root of the problem, like in taking uh, the mass firearms out of control of 18-year-olds. I mean, common sense would tell you you don't want an 18-year-old going on with a gun that can kill 20 people in a couple matter of minutes. But we can't even do that in this country. So please, there's no change in this country at all. I mean, we can talk about change, we can talk about loving each other all we want, but <clears throat> nothing changes, nothing at all. You're angry. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's okay. Um, how, how does one go about affecting that change? Obviously, it, you know, it's up to elected officials to pass laws, pass gun control, pass, um, you know, edicts that say 18-year-olds can't have guns, but how, how then would you say to your community, we want change and this is how we go about it? See, they've always been back on us. We are the victims. We're not the ones that need to be making change. The people from outside our community, these people coming outside the community who feel good, they need to go back to their communities and say, look at we got to do something about this racism. There's no reason for you to hate other people. There's no sense in you going down to Texas may, having your children kill these, uh, these babies, really, down there. I mean, it's your responsibility, not our responsibility, to do this all this on us. You can't put this on us. We have done nothing wrong since we come to this country. Matter of fact, we have been the people of faith since we come to this country in 69. We always had faith that things were going to get better for us. We had faith after the slavery. We had faith after Reconstruction. We had faith after civil rights that things were going to change. We always said things were going to change. We fought in every war in this country. Do you realize every war? And when we came back from these wars, a lot of times we got lynched. You know, in uniform. In uniform, we got lynched. So, I mean, don't put this on us. 
go out there and ask people why is it happening? Why aren't you going back to your communities? Why aren't you making change? Why can't you just make basic changes? Like I said, taking mass weapons of mass destruction really out of 18 year old hands and then come back to us and say we've done something and we want you, you want your assistance in it. But every time I hear people coming to our community say, what are you going to do next? I say, uh-uh, we did nothing wrong. We went shopping. We went to church, you know. We did nothing wrong. I mean, like I said, we are Americans. We are the most American people. We had faith in this country when nobody, I mean, when nobody else would have, I don't think. So, I mean, don't, don't come back to me and ask me what am I going to do. Tell me what you were doing. I just want to uh, echo on that a, a little bit because that's one of the thoughts that I have had, that in black communities, we've always had this question about the talk. Most parents will say, if you have children, you have to have the talk. And black people know what you're talking about. You know, you got to raise your children uh, to be aware. Or you say, you know, don't tint your windows. You know, don't be here. Don't don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't talk back. Don't look anybody straight in the eye. You know, and it's not that we want our children to be afraid, but we're afraid for them because how they are perceived by other folks. Are other communities having the talk with their children? Are they sitting at the dinner table? saying we're human beings, you know, we have to respect each other. Are they in, in their schools where we may not be or where we may be a minority? Are they having that talk with those? I keep reading in the paper, when they, when, especially when they see these, these shooters by themselves, the one thing that comes out all the time is the parents say, we didn't know what was going on. Why not? Why don't you go in that bedroom and check? My God, if, if your son leaves the bedroom and you suspect something, wouldn't you go in there and open every drawer and look under the bed and try to find out what he's up to, what, he, what he's doing? You know, living in your house, you've got some responsibility there. So, you know, just saying, just kind of echoing on what Kenneth has said, that, that there needs to be conversation in other communities about how do we how do we stop this you know what do we do how do we talk to our children about what's right and what's wrong how do we talk to our children about race why can't we have this conversation in church martin luther king said the most segregated hour in america 11 o'clock on sundays <laughs> You know, everybody going they separate, they separate, separate ways. ways, right? You know, so it, it, it's a two-way street. Absolutely. I mean, beyond grief, I, I think obviously grief is the initial emotion, but then there is anger because nothing changes. And having a conversation, having a real conversation with people of different colors different races, different religions, um, is the start of being able to feel that we are all human beings at the end of the day, and we all have rights and we all deserve to be here. And go grocery shopping without the possibility of dying. Right, but again, we don't have to prove that. No. I mean, why, why should we even talk about being human beings 
give me a break. I mean, we got nothing to prove. You know, Toni Morrison wrote an interesting piece, and she talks about this, how we're always trying to prove ourselves. She says that we build the pyramids, and he said, you didn't do that, you know. You did this. You had a president of the United States, you know, become president, a man, a man of color become president. That didn't change it, you know. So we got to stop saying if we do this or if we do that, things are going to get better. It's not us. <laughs> this is not on us. No matter what we do, as long as we got systematic racism, nothing's going, that doesn't change anything. I mean, you got people putting, on the Internet, putting the past president of the United States and his wife as monkeys. You know, I mean, come on, give me a break. I mean, I don't have to prove nothing to nobody about being a human being or what I, my past achievements have been done or my children have been done to prove that I don't deserve to be killed or my children don't be concealed, deserve to be killed or my grandparents don't be concealed. No, we don't, we don't owe that to nobody. We, we, don't, we don't have to prove that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is just illuminating, I think, not only certainly for us, but for people who really need to, to hear this conversation. Um, I'm host Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. Coming up next, Jay Moran is with Cara Oliver Perez, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Tapestry Charter. Stay with us. One of the best ways to support WBFO is to become a valuable sustainer. It is the most mutually beneficial relationship we can have with our members. Whether you give annually or monthly as a sustaining member, you allow not only us, but also yourselves to be financially prepared throughout the year. Plus, the amount you give is entirely up to you. Whatever you are comfortable with, no amount is too small. Please take a moment to visit our website at wbfo.org or give us a call at one 1- 877-456-8870 to donate today. Thank you. Funding for WBFO's Business and Economy Desk is made possible by MNT Bank. Understanding what's important for 160 years. Member FDIC. When a chess match ends in murder, when the commissioner is confronted, can Neville solve the case? Watch Death in Paradise tonight at 8 on WNED PBS. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next? There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. Hi there and uh, welcome back. We're here at the Golden Cup on uh, Jefferson West, or East Utica here in Buffalo. And uh, we continue on uh, this morning with Kara uh, Oliver Perez. Uh, with us uh, this morning, she is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion of Tapestry Charter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. There's a, a couple of elements I want to get into here because you know, not only do you do your work at Tapestry, but you have a lot of expertise in, in the uh, you know helping out companies when it comes to diversity. So I want to get into that eventually. But first, let's just talk about uh, the kids at school and the impact the shootings at uh, the Jefferson Avenue Tops had on the kids. 
outline it for us as best you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I can remember that day vividly. Um, I was actually myself in Charlotte, ironically enough, you know, celebrating both my niece and my sister who graduated um, from, you know, two amazing HBCUs. Um, my husband got the text message, um, you know, and immediately I uh, called our family engagement, community engagement director, who's a phenomenal, Miss Yvonne Dubois, um, who works directly in this work. She's a licensed mental health social worker, and I called her. She's also a member of, you know, this community. And, um, you know, to check in on her, she was aware of what happened. Uh, we were still getting developments and the only thing I could think about outside of our staff was our kids. Right. So, um, you know, we missed a graduation, and uh, unfortunately, but we, I ran back to my hotel, opened my laptop, and I looked up to see how many of our students lived in the 14208 zip code. And uh, immediately my mind went to, like, the what-ifs, you know, just in that space. And, uh, you know, thankfully, um, while we didn't have any students uh, who were, you know, in that you know in that space right. but we did have students who were there when it happened we had students who you know uh who live in the community who are aware who and have shopped at that store their parents have shopped at that store parents shop there work there live and play there right and um you know it, it's been a really rough time for our kiddos for yeah. sure and you've, we've gone you and i've talked a little bit already about this and the stories are really heartbreaking about what these kids are feeling right now right yeah you know a lot of fear and whether things, or not they lived yeah. in this neighborhood or not but yeah all right I mean this is this you know we call it the ripple effect right it just doesn't you know there's that direct impact like living within this community and then there's the identity impact you know students of color particularly black students who this really really affects right and so there's not one person who's been affected you know however when we look at our black population of students, um, it brings up the question, you know, again, why? And so a lot of students are feeling those feelings of fear, despair, hopelessness, um, anger, frustration, rage, you know, all of those, those stages of grief that you go through. Um, you know, we have students who have, you know, whose light just shines and are just like, you know, rays of sunshine. Unfortunately, their lights have been dimmed um, because of, you know, this tragedy, um, because they're navigating a world where they're seeing hate and, and in the most violent way. And I think, you know, that's what's most heartbreaking because, you know, when you think about youth and when you think about uh, that light and that energy force, you think about the future, right? You think about love, you think about prosperity, you think about just visions and to see and hear you know, children, right? Even at the youngest of ages, we're K through 12. Um, you know, when we hear even our younger kiddos, you know, say, miss, I don't, I don't know, or I'm, I'm scared, or I, I just don't want to exist in this space. Uh, that's really gut-wrenching. Your space at uh, Tapestry Charter also uh, serves a lot of needs, doesn't it? Not just for, for the kids, but for the families in some cases who are finding themselves right now challenge when it comes to uh, food issues right now absolutely you know you know I I don't you know refer to this area as a food desert I, I refer to it as a food apartheid right because there is an intentionality right that actually led to this and that needs to be named and you know when I think about our families the majority of our families uh, at tapestry live and you know play and work within this this community and again that ripple effect and the impact is just not you know taking away a source of food 
food, it's also taking away a source of community, a source of, you know, getting your needs met, right? Medications, right? This is, there was a pharmacy in there. Um, and so, or jobs, economic development, ultimately. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, immediately after, and I want to shout out our amazing, you know, uh, you know, across the K through 12, our counseling team, as well as our, um, you know, director for family and community engagement and our executive director said, we're going to scale up our food pantry. Um, we are a feed more site. Um, and so we service, you know, families from all across Western New York. And, um, you know, we had the great fortune of receiving a generous donation from Lincoln University to be able to, you know, pay for more toiletries and be able to provide more resources to our families. And, you know, the impact is certainly, you know, there. And most, most importantly, the need is there as well. And it's certainly great to, to see that type of effort and support uh, coming from such a distance like that. For sure. Uh, at the same time, you told me a disturbing story about how kids have become desensitized in some cases and how some kids actually experienced the shooting of tops the gamers they were of course the shooting was live streamed by the shooter right what does that what does that do to, to kids? I mean, did some of the kids actually see that video? Uh, a lot of our students, unfortunately, saw that video. Um, some, you know, by their own, right? Their own, like, you know, curiosity. And some, you know, received text messages, random text messages, spam messages that were a picture and they clicked and that video was right there. Um, and and I some think, thought it was actually a game. Right, some actually thought this was like they're watching, you know, a first person shooter game like Call of Duty. Um, and it was so unbelievable, the, the gore, right? Um, that our students are witnessing in the way that, you know, we support, right, our students and that uh, we led immediately, you know, that Monday after, um, led by, again, our family and community engagement director, Restorative Circles. We work directly with Dina Thompson-Marie Moy from Erie County Restorative Justice, um, who uh, helped us with trauma response circles to what to do when you witness uh, instances of violence um, and how to lead into conversations with students because, one, there's a historical right aspect to this that needs to be named, and then there's also the trauma aspect. And then when we think about, you know, um, specifically this community where sometimes, and not often, where students might be exposed to instances of violence, right? Uh, this just elevates that times 10 or even more, and it's greater, and the impact is felt greater. So, you know, usually what we see when, you know, students are exposed to, uh, you know, things like this is more reclusiveness, that fear, um, you know, students who, you know, slipping of grades, there's an academic impact as well. I don't want to do work. Why right. should I? Because right. It seems insignificant. Right. It seems so insignificant. Take it what happened. And then, you know, immediately after, you know, Buffalo, we, we have, you know, the Uvalde school district, right, in Texas. So then that, the school component comes back and then the shooting and the violence component comes back, another, the same weapon that was used. So it, it doesn't put students in the space of hope and wanting, um, but the way that we're actively challenging this is to one whole space for our students, constructively listening to our students with intent and giving our students the autonomy to express how they truly feel to their core. Um, and that's important. Uh, students and, uh, and staff as well, this has not been an easy time these past few weeks. Um, and so, you know, the restorative conversations and leading into those restorative, you know, truthfully, right? We call it Buffalo Honest, uh, right? <laughs> right? Buffalo right, Honest. Right. Uh, but getting down to the history and the context of this, 
uh, give students a framework for, okay, so how do I empower myself to challenge this? How do I challenge violence? How do I speak up on violence? And giving them that space to do so. You're listening to uh, Buffalo What's Next, and we are here at the Golden Cup at the uh, corner of uh, Jefferson and East Utica here in Buffalo, and we're talking uh, with uh, Kara Oliver-Perez, the uh, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Tapestry Charter School. We had a, a great conversation yesterday, though, uh, about some of your other work beyond the school that you've been involved in, you know, helping companies and other organizations deal with diversity issues. And we talked about the kind of common things that we hear from people, for example, quote unquote, I'm not a racist, but address that for us. How, uh, and talk uh, through that, that type of thinking and how you would deal with something like that. And you probably have dealt with it before. Right. Um, so, you know, I think at the core, um, when I hear that, I, I think, you know, over time, it, it's I know it's a, an emotional response, right? Because no one wants to be labeled as a racist right but I, I always tell people we have to take this from just the internal perspective like me humans are inherently selfish right and so we <laughs> totally folks love <laughs> even though they say oh I don't want to talk about myself there's like a little glimmer that gets in their chest when they do um, because who knows you better than you um, however I always go back to the conversation about biases right those implicit biases that everyone has right. because here's the thing you don't have to be a racist to uphold uh racism right and it comes also in the form and that's of, a big part of this oh, yeah. right that we're trying we're trying to get that out i mean that's something i think a lesson that's happened in the last two years since george floyd that, like you said you don't have to be a racist to add to the problem right and so the two things i would say when when someone says that to me um is i lead in with a conversation about privileges right so you know for example um i as a cisgendered black woman uh, will never know the experience of what it means to be a transgender black woman off of safety alone. That's a privilege that I carry, right? Yet we could talk about, you know, shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw and, you know, intersectionality. The identities that we wear ultimately have an impact, right, on how we navigate this world. And we have to be able to talk about the social privileges that we have. Everyone has them. But when we talk about talk about it from the context of race, I notice, especially when it comes to, um, you know, folks who are not of color. Um, it's like a trigger, right? Because automatically, well, I'm not a bad person. No one is blaming, right, you specifically for racism. However, we also have to be able to name that racism exists institutionally and systematically, right? And when we talk about tops, right, systematically, right, the location, you know, the spacing, how size. that tops, the size of that tops, even the exits, right, of that tops, right? Uh, we talk about food apartheid. We have to talk about economic development within the East Side community and how so for so long this is a community that has been fighting to access to resources. We have to also talk about housing. We have to talk about redlining. We have to talk about the, even the very roots and the histories post, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, World War II, right, in the GI Bill and how that disenfranchised, a lot, especially members of the black community and so um, you know so we talk about privilege but then we also talk about our biases I always make a joke you know I'm from New York City originally <laughs> born and raised um, and so as a Giants fan I get a lot of slack right being a Giants fan and so I ask folks anytime and I'm a predominant space is usually a Bills fans I said if I told That's you true. I was a Giants fan right now what would you do they said, oh I would boo you oh you stink oh terrible right and I said but I said there it is right there now that's a really trite example yeah, yeah. but there's 
an inherent bias. We all have biases, especially when it comes to identity, right? Um, it's the little things like, you know, maybe moving your purse over when you maybe see a man of color walking down the way or you know, in the education system, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline and why, you know, students of colors, particularly black and brown boys, uh, are exponentially, um, you know, suspended in turn in, you know, like in the system or the criminal justice system uh, compared to their white counterparts for the same, uh, you know, the same offenses, right, or the same infractions. Um, and so I think when I center it back to the person, right. and I, you got to hold that mirror up, there's a reflection point that could happen. But I'm going to be honest with you. Um, not everybody's going to get there. But for the folks that are listening and the folks that are willing to change, those are the folks that you rally and empower. Because here's the thing about it. Um, people of color can dismantle a system that they did not create and or benefit from. So the earnest is going to be on allies and essentially white folks to step in and say, you know what? This is where we have to take this trajectory, and this is how we lead in together. So there has to be a process, power over, power for, and power with. How about uh, just a, a call for action in that regard? I mean, that's one thing about our, our audience. We have a lot of people, this is my impression of, of our audience, who are, that's, I think, they're lifelong learners. They want to find a better way. A call to action to them. A call to action. So my first thing would be uh, listen to listen to the folks on the ground. You know, uh, I mentioned just previously power over, power for, and power with. And, you know, a lot of times we see p folks who are power over. And that is, I know more than, you know, I'm going to help you because you're a disenfranchised and or I think you're disenfranchised and you don't have the agency to speak for yourself. And that's not what folks need, right? What you could do is yield your privilege that could form in a that could come in a form of yielding access to resources access to spaces um, making sure that minoritized and marginalized folks um, have spaces and uh, have tables right to be able to speak to right some of the issues that are happening and give them that power because you know no one knows what's happening to them better than the people who are affected right um, and then be being able to stand beside so you know one thing I would also say is educate yourself um, it is not the role and responsibility for minoritized and marginalized people to continue to educate, and I, I see that far too often, um, especially in the DEI space. Like, yes, there is spaces for education, but once you get that education, the onus is on you to continue to build that. We should be, right, if we're ever growing as, as human beings, lifelong learners to the day we transition out of this world. Excuse me. So it's important that you know, there is a reflection, right? Check yourself, check your privilege, ask yourself, you know, is this really, you know, as a call to action, am I, you know, is it not just giving, you know, the money, right? But it's also cha cha changing policies, practices, and procedures that lend to institutionalized and structural racism so that we can ensure future generations have a framework and do not have to carry on this, you know, continue historical, racialized, and oppressive trauma. You know, Kara, we've got, you've carried on considerably here and uh, helped us understand some tough issues here for sure. <laughs> I hope But so. we didn't get a chance, and I just want to, because we're down to just the last 30 seconds here, about your book. 
You go, girl. A letter to young queens. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so I wrote that book in 2019 as a way to empower, uh, especially young girls of color. Um, I have my next one, Peace King, coming out in June that is targeted to uh, males and or those young men who identify as men. Um, and it's a love letter to especially young black boys who so often don't hear positivity and see themselves in a positive light. Um, and I do want to quickly shout out Zanetta um, and Zaire, uh, who, you know, Zaire is a survivor of the top shooting and what he did and his mother did is an inspiration and took this tragedy and use it as a way to pour back into education. Uh, I'm happy to say that I saw that they uh, you know, collected over 4,000 books um, that will be distributed to the communities that need them the most. So shout out, shout out to Zanetta, shout out to Zaire for changing the face of education and continuing to make it better for our future generations. Kara, uh, thank you very much for coming down and joining us. And I think we've got a conversation to continue. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Kara Oliver Perez is uh, the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Tapestry Charter School. You've been listening today to Buffalo What's Next, live from the Golden Cup here on Jefferson Avenue. We're glad to have you with us. This is, of course, for, we'll be back with you tomorrow at 10. And this is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN only, and WUBJ Jamestown. <laughs>